So there was a week, it was called Bicker. You would go over to the eating clubs as a sophomore and you would go to say the Ivy Club and you would have a series of, it was like speed dating. That's Michael Lewis, author of Moneyball, among many other books, and the host of the podcast Against the Rules. He was Princeton University class of 1982. And I asked him to describe for me the world of Princeton's 17 eating clubs and how you bickered, as the term goes, to get into them. You'd have a series of 10 or 15 minute conversations with seven or eight members. And after every conversation, the member would go upstairs and write out a note card on you. Do I want this person in the club? When I would say there were five of them that were selective. You could do it at all five of them if you wanted. And at the end of the week, the club members had a night where they are two nights where they got together and went over every single person based on these 15 minute conversations. And, you know, they would be 500 or 400 people applying for spots in the eating club and they would take 30 people. There were people who cared enough about it that when they didn't get into the club they wanted to be in, they dropped out of school. I knew three people who dropped out of school because it was that horrible for them. They felt socially ostracized. Okay, think about that for a moment. Michael Lewis knew three people who dropped out of Princeton their sophomore year because they didn't get into the eating club they wanted. That was in the 1980s. Now, today, the eating clubs are more democratic and somewhat less central to the Princeton experience. But go back to the 1950s, and they were essential for three reasons. First, the Princeton dining hall was only meant for freshmen and sophomores. After that, you were expected to take your meals in an eating club. Otherwise, you literally had nowhere to eat. Second, the eating club wasn't just a dining hall. It was an entire house, often a mansion, with a large dining room, a beautifully kept lawn, maybe a billiards room, a library. It was the center of your Princeton social life, where you ate, hung out, drank, sat by the fire, nurtured friendships, which leads us to the third point. The eating clubs could help you make serious connections. My father went to Princeton. He had gone through the bigger process. He'd received all these bids to join various clubs. And he'd received an invitation to join Ivy Club, which was unusual because he was from New Orleans. And he instead wanted to go with his friends to another club that was called Cap and Gown. And he was taken off by, you know, some Rockefeller types before he made this decision. And they told him they were being really earnest with him. Don't do this. You're going to destroy your career. The Ivy Club is that important. You really shouldn't turn down an opportunity to essentially join the East Coast establishment. Clearly, the eating clubs were a big deal. Getting into the right club meant you had access to the exclusive old money world of connections and opportunities. It set you up for success in America and the club selected their new members to maintain a certain demographic. Traditionally, in most years, 100% of students got a bid to one of the eating clubs, even if it wasn't one of the high society ones. However, in 1958, a bunch of students got no bids at all. And as it happened, most of these students had one thing in common, their religion. I'm Mark Oppenheimer, and this is Gatecrashers, a podcast about the hidden history of Jews in the Ivy League. This is episode two, Princeton and the Dirty Bicker of 1958. In 
In our last episode, you heard about Columbia College and America in the early 20th century. It was the era when Jewish boys, the urban sons of immigrant factory workers and shopkeepers, worked their way into an Ivy League school, despite strenuous efforts to keep them out. In the late 40s and 50s, though, America had changed. The horrors of the Second World War had, at least for a time, put a damper on anti-Semitism. Any talk of Jews not being American enough or sociable enough or whatever was immediately associated with Nazism. Figures like the anti-Semitic radio priest Charles Coughlin had been pretty roundly discredited. And American Jews had moved up in the world. Hank Greenberg played for the Detroit Tigers. Bess Meyerson, a Jewish woman, was crowned Miss America in 1945. According to one study, by 1957, three-quarters of U.S. Jews were white-collar workers. And there were major American businesses bearing Jewish names. Bloomingdale's, Neiman Marcus, Estee Lauder, Goldman Sachs. William Paley was the head of CBS. But that doesn't mean that anti-Semitism disappeared. Moving to the suburbs didn't guarantee Jews' entree into the waspy country clubs or into eating clubs. Just because you're admitted doesn't mean you're accepted. And nowhere was this truer than at Princeton in the 1950s. Imagine that you're one of those sophomores at Princeton in 1958 who didn't get into any of the eating clubs. Again, the tradition being that everyone got in. And when all of you rejects get together in one place, it dawns on you that this is a room with a very curious composition. It's a room mostly full of Jews. It seems that one of the main criteria for exclusion from the eating clubs this year is your religion, your ethnicity, your Judaism. Now, the dirty bicker, as it became known, was big news in the winter of 1958. It was national news. But before we get to this extraordinary story, which tells us so much about the Protestant establishment and what it was like to be on the outside of it looking in, we need to understand a little bit more about Princeton University. In the last episode, we learned about Columbia, which is in the heart of New York City, and which by World War I was something like 40% Jewish and had a national reputation as a Jewish school. Princeton, just 60 miles away in the New Jersey countryside, was pretty much the opposite. It had been founded by ministers, and in the early 20th century, it was seen as a small, rich, preppy, Christian, and very conservative school. It wasn't the kind of place Jews wanted to go. This is Abby Kleonsky, who was Princeton class of 2014 and did research on the history of Princeton Jewelry. When I got into Princeton, which was 2009 in the spring, you know, I told my grandparents and my grandfather, who actually had gone to Harvard in the 1940s, said, absolutely not. You can't go to Princeton. They're anti-Semitic. You're going to have a terrible time there. They have quotas. It's going to be really unpleasant to be a student there. So that's pretty interesting, even to Abby's grandpa, who had gone to Harvard at a time when it had anti-Jewish quotas. Princeton was seen as a horrible place for the Jews. It was also seen as a place that, unlike Columbia or even Harvard, felt very Christian and very wealthy, very establishment. That was what I heard from other people, this reputation of it's an unpleasant place to be Jewish. It's not comfortable. It's waspy. All of the presidents of the university for the first, like, 200 plus years were either 
a minister or the son of a minister. Um, and it was pretty explicit in the curriculum design that they were teaching people how to be like upstanding Christian men. So I think that was part of it is it had this aura of being a very Christian waspy place. It was pretty wealthy. It was a place to rub shoulders. You know, we have F. Scott Fitzgerald, other authors write about it. It was a place for rich boys to play and meet other rich boys so that they could get in the right spots when they were trying to make their business deals or their political connections. One of the places they made those connections was in the eating clubs, which had arisen in the 19th century as places for upperclassmen to eat. But the eating clubs had also immediately become selective and picky and clicky. Woodrow Wilson, president of Princeton from 1902 to 1910, loathed the eating clubs, which he called snobbish and undemocratic. In 1906, he proposed abolishing them, but the trustees weren't interested. That's in part why he stepped down as president of the university, because he hated the eating clubs but couldn't get rid of them. Besides its snobbery and conservatism, there was another factor that made Princeton unappealing for Jewish boys, and that was the lack of professional schools. So if you're an immigrant or you're the child of an immigrant and you know that you have to make a living, it's not a place to go. There's no law school. There's no medical school. You can't get the professional training that you need to be a financially successful person on your own without the pre-existing connections. And so if you were someone who was looking at Princeton and already it had this reputation of being waspy and Christian and rich... Um, and no professional training, and you were going to be excluded socially, why bother applying? Here I want to add a bit of personal history. I remember visiting Princeton in the summer of 1991, before my senior year of high school. It was stunningly beautiful, and our tour guide was awesome, and I most certainly did not apply to school there. It just felt a little too beautiful, a little too much like what I imagined a country club to be. I mean... I went to a prep school that was super country clubby, and even so, Princeton felt kind of over the top. It just didn't feel right for me. So imagine that all these factors kept the Jewish numbers low. In 1915, when Columbia was something like 40% Jewish, Princeton was three or 4% Jewish. Nevertheless, there was Jewish life in the first half of the 20th century. A Jewish boy, Frank Glick, was captain of the football team back in 1916. And it's not like Glick was a closeted Jew. In fact, he helped bring in a rabbi from Trenton to lead services. Jews periodically held services through the 1930s and 40s. And in a weird twist, the services were fairly well attended by a good number of Christians. At that time, there was mandatory chapel service. Uh, once every two weeks, you had to attend some uh, religious service. It didn't matter they, which denomination it was. This is Paul Rockness a Jewish student from the class of 1960. So, of course, the Jewish services were Friday night. At least half of the boys, it was all male at that time, were not Jewish. And were they interested in Judaism? Was the rabbi a particularly attractive speaker? No, they wanted to go to New York for the weekend, and they didn't want to have to come back for Sunday services. I suppose they inadvertently had their exposure to Judaism, at least. Judaism manifested by the Friday evening services.
So into the 1950s, Jewish students were holding religious services, captaining sports teams, and joining eating clubs. For the most part, they felt like they were accepted. And according to one estimate, by the late 1950s, the school was about a seventh Jewish, which would make it more Jewish percentage-wise than Harvard or Yale. That sense of belonging is what made the events of the winter of 1958 so disturbing. Not just for Jewish students, but for everyone who thought of Princeton as a happy, tolerant place. To understand what happened, we have to revisit the institution of Bicker, which you heard Michael Lewis talk about earlier. Bicker was like fraternity rush, but for eating clubs. It happened in January of your sophomore year, between fall and winter semesters. Remember that Michael Lewis called it speed dating. Now listen to Jerry Spivak, one of the Jewish students in the Princeton class of 1960. Bicker is two weeks where you sit in your room wearing your Harris tweeds and the right rep tie, and you sit in your living room, you and however many roommates you have. And Bicker runs for, you put it this, 14 nights or something like that, 17 clubs. And they each send out Bicker committees. So the first night, I think most people see 17 Bicker committees. So well, actually, it's, it's more like all day. Right? They come in the room and they sit down with each other. They're all assigned who they're going to sit down, have a card on everybody. And they're in the room. And it's not that long interview because there are bigger committees lining up outside the door. And it's an interview. It's like uh, speed dating. I just have to interject how awesome it is that they both reached for the speed dating metaphor. So here you are, and you are being interviewed to see whether you are socially acceptable. So that's pretty rough. You sit in your room and upperclassmen from the eating clubs come in and you have just a few minutes to charm them. And then they walk out and fill out cards about you, basically whether they found you acceptable or not. One person told me they gave you a one, two, or three rating. Thumbs up, thumbs down, or let's discuss. Here's Paul Rockmus. Well, they asked me, you know, where I went to high school and, uh, you know, just chit chat, you know, what was I interested in? What, did I play any sports? Rockmus said a lot of his classmates had connections to certain eating clubs, either through family or because they'd gone to high school with someone who was now in one of them. But Rockmus had no such connections. It was kind of like a meat market. I, I felt very uncomfortable doing it. Speed dating, meat market. It sounds pretty stressful. And yet, almost everybody went through the process. 99, 100% of the class. Because if you didn't, you had nowhere to eat, nowhere to hang out, no one to be with for your last two years of college. Students were aware of how stressful this could be. In the 1930s and 40s, there had actually been a student movement to encourage the eating clubs to find a space for every sophomore. This was called the movement for 100% bicker, meaning that 100% of sophomores would get in someplace, guaranteed. The eating clubs all got together and all 17 agreed that if there were a few students left over with no bids, each club would take one or two of them until they all had a place and the class would achieve 100% bicker. In 1941, Princeton achieved 100% bicker for the first time. And it did so most years after that too. But some years, it failed. In 1956, for example, more than 20 sophomores got no bid. That was a big deal. 
The Interclub Committee, the ICC, which was sort of like the Greek Council or a High Council of Eating Clubs, eventually had to twist the arms of enough club presidents to get every sophomore into one club or another. Eventually, they achieved 100% bicker. But the university administration was so alarmed by 20 students getting no bid that they committed to building an alternative eating facility for students who were shut out of the eating clubs. This would become Woodrow Wilson Lodge. More on that later. Friends, if you like what you're hearing on Gatecrashers, you might also like another podcast that I host. Unorthodox is the universe's leading Jewish podcast, and each week, my co-hosts, Stephanie Butnick and Leah Leibowitz, and I discuss the news of the Jews, and we interview two guests, one Jewish and one a Gentile of the week. We talk to fascinating people. Some of our guests have included comedian Judy Gold, Congresswoman Katie Porter, authors like A.J. Jacobs, Chuck Klosterman, and more. Guys, this show is a lot of fun. It's irreverent, but not silly, at least not most of the time, and it will always get you thinking. You can find Unorthodox, a Tablet Studios production, wherever you listen to podcasts. Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. But for all the club's good intentions, and for all the meddling by the college administration, as Princeton was about to learn, as America was about to learn, the problem of bicker had not been solved. It was about to get dirty. In 1958, Bicker began on January 30th, a Thursday. Sophomores were supposed to be in their rooms from 4 p.m. to 6.30, and again that evening from 7.30 to midnight. And that schedule went on for nine cold winter days. Sophomores had to sit in their rooms, hoping that eating club committees, made up of three or four upperclassmen, would visit them. They would sit there and wait. Some of them had many visitors to entertain while others got very few. Students got scared if committees didn't come. They got envious if their roommates got more visitors. For students who knew that Bicker wasn't going well, the experience was terrible. Jeffrey Wolf was a sophomore who had to sit and watch as the Bicker committee wooed his charming roommates while barely paying him any attention at all. His experience of Bicker was completely demoralizing. He knew from the first night that the committees were making fun of him asking him the kind of silly questions that they asked just to take up time while they conducted real conversations with his roommates just a few feet away. He was so upset that he didn't stick around for all nine nights. I traveled to Maine to interview Wolf at home, and he told me he dropped out of school after the third night of Bicker. The humiliation of having... Each session lasted three hours, so I'd had nine hours of people condescending to me or asking me what my favorite utensil was, saying, say, you don't use wooden hangers, do you? you the little pinch in your sport jacket there in the shoulder, that kind of bullshit. So I was depressed, plenty depressed. So I called my father. My father was fantastic. He drove down to get me. Wolf left campus, went home to Newtown, Connecticut, and worked as a mailroom boy at Sikorsky Aircraft for the next year before returning to finish college.
the vast majority of boys, those who endured the whole Bicker process, the end came two Saturdays later, on February 8th, when Bicker ended and sophomores were informed which clubs wanted them. If you were a great athlete or very good looking or very charming or from the right family or the right prep school, you might end up with three or four bids. If you were none of those, you might get zero. Once the sophomores knew if they were wanted or not, then the power dynamic shifted. Now the clubs had to woo the most popular sophomores. So on that Saturday night, February 8th, 1958, the clubs did what they always do on the last night of Bicker. They held open houses. So the students they'd given bids to could come check them out. If you were a popular student with a few clubs to choose from, you were sitting on top of the world. You were walking up and down Prospect Street, going from club to club, being courted, trying to figure out whom to say yes to. But at the exact same moment, late that Saturday night, 35 students had no bids at all, an unprecedented number. Now, Paul Rockmas did have a bid, but he remembers what it was like for all the students who didn't. They were very anxious, they were very upset, and feeling demeaned. In the Princeton archives, there is an 88-page memo entitled Reflections on the Princeton Club System and the 1958 Bicker. It's written by Stephen Rockefeller, a senior who was the inter-club committee chairman, which meant he was in charge of the whole Bicker process. It's an amazing document. Basically, Rockefeller was so shaken by what had happened that he sat down in 1959, a year after his graduation, and wrote up a complete history from his point of view of what had gone down. To many of us, Rockefeller wrote, Bicker has been a nightmare in a way that few people who have not lived through it will ever understand. It is hard to imagine the number of late hours, the intense feelings, and the frustration of struggling to control a situation which is not controllable. I have seen more than one undergraduate leader collapse in tears from physical exhaustion. Now, keep in mind, this is how it felt from the point of view of Stephen Rockefeller. This was a guy who was in the Ivy Club, the most prestigious of them all. A guy whose father was about to be elected governor of New York, whose grandfather built Rockefeller Center, whose great-grandfather was the John Rockefeller of Standard Oil. Stephen Rockefeller was at the top of the social pecking order, and still, Bicker basically wrecked him. So imagine how it felt to be one of the 35 students who got no bid at all. So what happened on that Saturday night to those 35 students? As Rockefeller remembered it, the Bicker headquarters were at the Ivy Club, which was his club. At 9.30 that night, all the club presidents assembled in the library upstairs. Meanwhile, boys who got no bids began to gather downstairs in the club dining hall and out on the porch. Rockefeller was getting worrisome reports ferried from downstairs up to him of a dozen boys, then two dozen boys, all without bids. The Ivy Club was packed, he wrote. Upperclassmen were talking to the boys in trouble, gathered in the Ivy Club dining room and back porch where coffee and sandwiches were being served. A number of old grads, in other words, alumni, were valiantly trying to celebrate with a few new members and were somewhat puzzled by the whole affair. Every once in a while, a drunk would stumble in and out of the club. So it was a pretty weird scene. 
Some upperclassmen were running around with walkie-talkies, getting information. At one point, a photographer from a Harvard publication appeared, and he was, according to Rockefeller, politely ushered to the door. Rockefeller writes that, quote, the phone never stopped ringing, and people darted in and out of the smoke-filled club. Several boys were in tears. Others were laughing, unaware of what was going on about them. But most were serious and talked quietly. The whole club seemed to be filled with the murmur and buzz of voices, which rose above the clink of glasses and coffee cups. I'm Andrew Lapin, the host of Radioactive, The Father Coughlin Story, another show from the team behind Gatecrashers. Radioactive tells the story of a demagogue who used a new mass medium to spread hate and get much too close to the center of political power. The podcast weaves together archival materials and present-day interviews to tell the story of the dangerous rise and dramatic fall of the radio priest, Father Charles Coughlin. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Here's how Paul Rockmas remembered that Saturday night in February 1958. So it uh, comes about 10 o'clock the evening of the final day, and there were about 30 kids, mostly Jewish or nerdy kids, who had not received a bid from any club. They were asked to come to a meeting at what was generally thought of as the top club, Ivy Club. Some of them were my friends, and they were very upset. And I joined them just to find out what was going on. At 10.45, Rockefeller called William Lippincott, the dean of students, to say that there was a big problem and he'd better come over. When Lippincott arrived around 11 p.m., they called a meeting in the library of the Ivy Club. It was basically a war room. They invited Dean Lippincott, the presidents and vice presidents of the junior and senior classes, the president of Hillel, the Jewish student organization, writers from the Daily Princetonian, two former presidents of the sophomore class, and the three-man bicker committee from Prospect Club, one of the eating clubs. Now, why Prospect Club? This is key, because Prospect was the only one of the 17 eating clubs that was a co-op. Students did their own cleaning and bussed their own tables. There were no servants. It was cheaper to belong, and as a result, it was considered very low status. It also had a lot of Jewish members. Now, as it happened, the Prospect Club also had a shortage of members that year, probably because so many sophomores had already turned them down. So by this point in the night, they actually needed and wanted those 35 unfortunate sophomores. And they did say they would take them all, which in theory would solve the problem. So sometime after midnight, Stephen Rockefeller and Prospect's president, a Jewish boy named Myron Margolin, went downstairs to where the rejected sophomores were gathered, sitting around anxiously smoking and drinking and eating, and explained to them that they all had a club. They could all go join Prospect. Now, you can imagine how the sophomores felt. They were all being dumped in one club, which would now forever be stamped as a loser club and a Jewish club. So the president of Hillel jumped up on a chair and said he was starting a petition that read, I have been discriminated against because of race or religion. And immediately, 12 students signed it, including one Chinese-American student who had no bids. 
Late in his life, Robert Goheen, who was president of Princeton when this all went down, was interviewed about the dirty bigger. And although he gets some of his figures jumbled up, he concedes the basic story, that Jews were the ones left out. That effort to get 100% had just worn itself out, I think. And what was some 57 students did not get admitted to any club despite the efforts of the inter-club committee. It turned out that a high proportion of them were Hebrews. In case you missed it, President Goheen did, in fact, refer to the Jewish students with no eating club as Hebrews. And this was when he was interviewed in 2004. Okay, back to 1958. The boys who were left out still needed a club to join. The Jewish students were arguing that according to the 100% principle, they should be dispersed among all 17 clubs. But Rockefeller and Prospect were arguing that the rule didn't kick in unless the boys literally had no club to join. And they did have a club to join, Prospect. But the students felt that being dumped in one club was actually no choice at all. So most of them refused to go to Prospect. At about two in the morning, still at a standoff, everybody went home. Over the next day, a dozen of the students either joined Prospect or got late offers from other clubs or joined Wilson Lodge, the alternative that the university had set up, but which didn't even have a building yet. So by Sunday, there were 23 sophomores, half of them, possibly more, Jewish, with no place to take their meals the next year. We have to ask, why were so many of the sophomores excluded from eating clubs Jewish? The more we look for an answer, the more heartbreaking it becomes. For example, if you believe Stephen Rockefeller's version of events from his report, only three of the eating clubs had actual quotas against Jews. And in fact, those were the clubs that actually had a lot of Jews already. Clubs that were already 15 or 20% Jewish may have instituted quotas to ensure they didn't become a third Jewish because they were afraid if that happened, then they would be seen as Jewish clubs. And they were afraid that if they became the de facto Jewish clubs, Gentile boys wouldn't want to join. And in fact, Jewish boys wouldn't want to join either because they'd feel ghettoized. In other words, clubs instituted quotas because they were afraid that being too Jewy would make them so uncool to everybody that it might doom them forever. They felt that in the competitive bicker system, they needed quotas just to survive. Was this anti-Semitic? Well, in a sense, obviously. But people sincerely didn't see it that way. The eating clubs just felt that Jews had to be spread out among the 17 clubs. And it was bad for everyone if Jews got concentrated in a few clubs. But to further understand what was going on, we have to remember how preppy Princeton was in 1958 and how big the class divide was between the elite and the working class, which included most of the Jews. We had a meeting of the public affairs in something called the Wig Clio Society, but it was the place that brought speakers to Princeton. That's Joel Davidow from the class of 1960. And somebody said, who should we get? And somebody said, Dean Acheson, he's been the Secretary of State, we'll write him a letter. And one of the freshmen sitting next to me said, give me the telephone. And he dialed and he said, 
Dean, this is Blair. The fellows want you to come. And he said, Dean will come. So I said, Blair, who's your father? And he said, he's ambassador to Canada. So I knew that it was just not like my high school. David Al had gone to a public high school just down the road in Trenton. And in another case, it was Christmas, and a fellow called Ted Cosby was going home to Jacksonville, and he had a very large package, like a package of clothing that he was mailing. And I said to him, what's in your package that you're sending home for Christmas? And he said, my tuxes and my tails. And I said, you have more than one tuxedo? And he said, yes. I said, how many do you have? And he said, seven. And I said, are you an entertainer? And he said, no. I said, why do you have seven tuxedos? And he said, well, in the Jacksonville social season, there are seven debutante parties and one cotillion, and you can't trust the cleaners to get your thing back. So it's easier to have one tuxedo for each debutante party and white tie and tails for the cotillion. So there were a lot of people there who just moved in totally different circles. David Howe also made the point that it wasn't just about religion. It was also about class. If you were the right kind of Jew, you were totally accepted. There was a fellow called Buzzy Krongard, and he came from Baltimore, and his father was an official of Brown Brothers Harriman, and he went to the Gilman School in Baltimore, and he was a hockey player, and he made Ivy Club. So if you were a rich prep school athletic Jew, they didn't care if you were Jewish. Krongard, by the way, went on to become executive director of the CIA in case you were wondering. Now, David Au, who was one of the sophomore Jews who did not get into an eating club, played his own special part in the drama. After the dirty bicker was over, he gave an interview to the New York Post that ran under the headline, How It Feels to Be an Outcast at Princeton. He told the Post, quote, In the eyes of the clubs, you shouldn't be short and non-athletic. You shouldn't have gone to a public high school. You shouldn't be on scholarship. Then he gave a second interview to Newsweek in which he said about Princeton, the two worst things you can be here are an intellectual or a Jew. And this article had the whole campus talking. The Daily Princetonian even ran a column attacking David Al. When I talked with David Al more than a half century later, he stuck to his guns. Princeton that year had 25 National Merit Scholars. Five of them were Jewish. And um, when the smoke cleared, uh, all five of the Jewish National Merit Scholars had no bids to any club. I didn't mean they just hated all Jews or something, but the combination of being a super nerd and Jewish, there were about six things that were negatives for getting into a club. And one of them was being a non-athlete. Another was not tall or unusually handsome. Another was better to be an average student, a party guy, and uh, another was prep school and, and having money and dressing well, and that I failed all of them. <laughs> I wasn't, it wasn't only that I was Jewish, I, I, I was short, I didn't have much money for clothes, and so on. So we're back to an argument that Dean Frederick Keppel from episode one made at Columbia in 1914, that Jews are fine, as long as they're the good sort of Jews, preppy and athletic and rich. But the public school Jews with immigrant parents who come to school and just grind away like nerds? 
Those are the Jews you have to watch out for. Paul Rockmus was even blunter about why the eating clubs avoided some Jews. They weren't interested in diversity. Uh, they didn't want people who looked a lot different from them, uh, except for the blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jewish kids. Jeffrey Wolf, who you'll remember dropped out before the end of Bicker, was sure that he would be rejected for a host of reasons, from his ethnicity to his speech impediment. And so then here comes Bicker. Uh, he's a bore, he stutters, he's of the tribe or however they, whatever. And it was, it was just shocking to me. And, but it hurt, every minute of it hurt. I've never been in as much pain as I was when I left. I, I, I was, I really hurt. I, I was hurt. This was how the Jews saw it. But I had to ask, what about the wasps, the preppy Protestants? I wanted to know if this was all a fair portrayal of their views. So I called Stephen Rockefeller. He's in his 80s, alive and well, and living in New York. After his graduation from Princeton, he got a PhD in Christian ethics and taught religion at Middlebury College for decades. He's also given away a lot of his family's money to environmental causes. He seems like a pretty great guy. We talked for a long time, and I want to play you part of our conversation. If you listen to the end, I think it will surprise you. Or maybe it won't. Did you have any feelings as an 18 or 19-year-old about Jews as being different or having different characters than the Protestant majority at Princeton? I mean, I certainly didn't reflect on that as a as a as a an important issue um both at deerfield where there were a limited number of jewish students um or as a, an entering student at princeton i i of course was well aware of the history of the second world war the nazis the holocaust all of that um, and I think that was one of the reasons why I was shocked as a sophomore at Princeton when I discovered what was happening with the club system and uh, the fact that a certain percentage of, of Jewish students were being excluded and that um, it was just unacceptable and morally wrong. I mean, in your report, which is you know, so, so thoughtful and, and soul-searching, you know, at one point you write, the majority of Jewish students have been a group which socially has been most acceptable and compatible in the four clubs in which they're concentrated. But you then go on to say that that the outstanding Jewish boy, like any other, will be taken into Prospect Street's best clubs. I mean, you seem to suggest that, you know, there were sort of the, the clubbable or socially acceptable Jews, and then there was a kind of lower tier. Did people perceive things that way at Princeton? Well, I think what the issue was is that some of the students, both Jewish and non-Jewish, who were from the clubs, uh, didn't get bid, um, came often from urban 
big uh, inner city high schools. Um, many of them were highly intellectual, but didn't have the same kind of social skills and um, and capacities that many other students coming into Princeton did. And uh, I think that's what I was pointing to. Students who were good athletes, had social skills, um, regardless of their religious background, they got, they got bids to clubs. I mean, that was just the reality of the situation. In the eyes of the eating clubs, it was okay to be Jewish as long as you had the right social skills. So I had to ask Rockefeller, what exactly were these skills? These skills that so many Jewish boys supposedly lacked. Was it wit? Was it uh, charm? How, how, can, how can you, for someone 50 years later, or 60 years later, how, how do you describe what those social skills were? You know, that's... Uh, <sighs> Yeah, I mean that's. I mean, I'm 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 just thinking, Mark. Here before I try to answer that, I mean, um, certainly, oh, young young men who were athletic, who were athlete on athletic teams. I mean, this was certainly part of it. Um, and I think the social experience um, from their background, um, the, the kind of um, experience they had had growing up, I mean, would 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 be an influence. I I would have to think more carefully. Um, to articulate this, but I think you know what I'm referring to. Um, it's a, it, it's just the difference in the social environment out of which a person comes, and um, um, so I, you know, I don't. I mean, you can you can. Ask me more about this, but I don't, uh, I mean, that's about all I can say, I think. The truth is, after talking with Stephen Rockefeller, I admire him. Not only because he truly ached for the sophomores who suffered that year. He wrote that Bicker nearly ruined his entire Princeton experience. But I admire him for his candor. Do you think that at Deerfield and when you got to Princeton that you had any stereotypes about Jews? I mean, uh, 
mean, I'm reflecting, Mark, I mean, to, to, to try to answer that question honestly. Um, and I'd, I'd have to, you know, I'd have to... I'd have to think that through carefully before I tried to answer it. Um, it's a good question. And, and undoubtedly, I did have some stereotypes that were reflected in the Protestant Christian uh, world in which I grew up. What about those students who didn't get into any eating club? Some of them joined Wilson Lodge, which would take anyone and which was on its way to becoming a very popular and socially acceptable alternative. And some of them did what Paul Rockmas did. You'll remember that he had a bit, but as it turned out, he was so disgusted by the whole process that he dropped out of bicker at the end. These outsiders just figured it out. I found places to eat. There was a wonderful diner about two blocks away from the school run by just a, an absolute sweetheart of elderly uh, black gentleman. I named him Mr. Griggs, and he served 35-cent hamburgers that were about two feet wide. Please join us next time for Gatecrashers, Episode 3, Why the Jews Loved Dartmouth. Gatecrashers is a podcast from Tablet Studios. The show is written and hosted by me, Mark Oppenheimer. Our executive producers are Josh Cross, Stephanie Butnick, and Liel Leibowitz. The show is produced, engineered, and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramucci, and Quinn Waller with help from Ellie Blyer. Leon Crame is our research assistant. Special thanks to Tanya Singer, Courtney Hazlett, Sarah Fredman-Ader, and Jerome Rusquet of Tablet Studios, Alana Newhouse, Morty Landown, Wayne Hoffman, Samantha Hacker, Kurt Hoffman, and all the staff at Tablet Magazine, and Christine Ragasa, Megan Larson, Seth Higgins, Cody Fitzpatrick, and Peter Fox. Additional music by Blue Dot Sessions. Please go rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend. You can write to us and tell us your stories of eating clubs accepted, rejected, or consumed at gatecrashers at tabletmag.com or leave us a voice memo at 917-310-0456. That's 917-310-0456. Remember to tell us your name and how we can get in touch with you. Special thanks to the Garden State Parkway and to the New Jersey Turnpike. For more information as well as some very tasty extras, go to tabletmag.com slash Crashers. And for more podcasts from Tablet Studios, please visit tabletmag.com slash podcasts.